Well, good morning, church. It is good to be with you. If you'll keep your place there in John chapter 6. The title of the message today is, Everyone Has a Set of Fish and Loaves. What is yours? Let me start by asking you this question. Who was the hardest teacher you had? Let me ask another question. When you think about the hardest teacher you ever had, did you respect them because they were difficult? Now, let me start by giving an analogy about myself, and I'm going to tell you that it's going to sound better than what it really is, okay? But I think that I have a little bit of of authority in this area. I have four degrees in higher education. Now, that sounds good. I'm still stupid, all right? Four degrees in higher education. In fact, uh, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. So these are great opportunities for me. All four of those degrees came at different institutions. So I truly am a man of the Enlightenment. I mean, I, I didn't just study at one location. They were in four different states, and I had a plethora of professors. So four degrees, four different states, four different institutions, lots of professors. And I tell you that just to say this, to say I had my fair share of teachers. There was one teacher who was harder than any other in all of those institutions. And I'm going to tell you why he was hard. Because if you came to his class on test day, and all you did was you studied your textbook, which was good, and all you did was study your notes from his lecture, you would not pass his test. I mean, this guy was brutal. Now, in education, we have something called Bloom's Taxonomy of Verbs. The lowest level of Bloom's is define, regurgitate, repeat, But a really good teacher is going to go higher up that ladder and they're going to make the student not just regurgitate facts or fill in the blanks. That's why so many of you, you would take tests, you would cram for the test because you just had to define a term. That was the lowest level of learning. And then you wouldn't remember anything about the test three hours later because all you had to do was the lowest level of learning. But this professor, he didn't want the lowest level. He wanted the highest level. And he said, when you come to my test, you're going to have to defend. You're going to have to justify. You're going to have to create what you know. So you've got to have the book as your foundation. You've got to have the lecture as your foundation. But if that's all you have, you will not pass this test. And it took me a long time to figure out how to study for this kind of test. This is why a lot of kids will do really good in high school because they're on the lower level of blooms. They're just regurgitating facts. They'll become valedictorians and then they'll go to college and they can't make it. And they say, what happened? Because it's higher level. It's higher level. So here I was in this class, higher level. This professor is making us apply. I mean, you couldn't just know about uh, the chemical messengers of the brain. You had to know that. You had to know the four. You had to know what a neuron was and the dendrites. You had to know all those things, but you couldn't just know that. You had to know what happened to the body when X 
plus y occurred. You had to, to explain why 2 plus 2 makes 4 and what significance that absolutely has on any bearing of life. And I'm going to tell you, that was hard. It was hard for me. Maybe it wasn't hard for you, but it was hard for me. And I walked away thinking, that is the hardest professor I have ever had in any institution in all of my life. But I'll tell you what made him great. He made you apply what you were learning. You couldn't just know it. You had to construct it and defend it. You had to live it. Did you know that the Gospels say that Jesus is a teacher? You know, Jesus himself said in John, he said it in um, chapter 13, he said, I am a teacher and a prophet and rightfully so. Did you know that Jesus' aim is to get you to do the harder things of life so that you can apply the Holy Scripture? He doesn't just want you to know. He doesn't just want you to regurgitate facts. He is a good and loving teacher who is going to make sure that you live what he is teaching. And when we come to John chapter 6... We come to a passage of Scripture that is in every gospel. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's in Luke, and it's in John. And while this passage may be about many good things, one thing is, it is about being tested. You don't believe me? You look at chapter 6, you look at verse 6, you notice this is what frames the whole miracle. It's not about your basket. It's not about giving you food when you don't have food. It's chapter 6, verse 6, right here. He said this to test them. This is a test of the Jesus broadcast system. And he is going to make these men know God in an applicable, real way. Can I say this to you? If he tested these disciples, he is going to test You? Do you know that? You're one of his disciples. I'm one of his disciples. And if we walk with Jesus, then we too are going to be tested. And it's not enough for you to just know stories from the Bible. You've got to live those stories. You've got to apply those stories. It's hard when you're tested, but there is purpose in the testing. And so today, what we are going to see is how to pass the tests, because you will be tested if you belong to the Lord. Every one of us will have our fish and our loaves moment in life. I don't know what it's going to be for you. You don't know what it's going to be for me. But I guarantee you this. Every one of us will have a fish and loaves moment where we stand with the Lord and we are tested. So how do you pass the test? Well, that's what Jesus will show us. The scripture will challenge us with here in chapter 6. I want to give you three ways you can pass God's good testing. Number one, number one, test our occasions for good. They are occasions for good. Now, many times we think when we are facing a trial, we are facing a test, 
that God does not love us. If we were living right, then we wouldn't be facing this trial. We would not be having this issue. Surely this is a sign that God is against us and not for us. But let me tell you, tests in the Bible for the believer are always good. That's what Scripture says. They're always good. So if you're a child of God and you're facing a trial, this is not God against you. This is God for you. Now, I want to just show you the sovereignty that Christ had over this moment where he's testing his disciples. I want to show you how he was in complete control here in the text. He knew the problem and he knew the solution. This is a setup. It is a God-ordained, momentary setup to teach and test his children. Chapter 6, look at verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Look at verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd. Now the scripture here in this text tells us that the large crowd was roughly about 5,000 men. And we, we learn throughout the Gospels that men were counted, women and children were not. So more than likely, this was well over 5,000 people that the Lord saw coming toward them, that the Lord would teach, that they would have sit down on the mountainside and be taught. But Christ knew this. He's not surprised by the number. He's not surprised by the occasion or the situation. Look what else. He lifts his eyes seeing the large crowd coming toward him. What does he do? Jesus looks to Philip and says, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, he does not say this because he does not have an answer. That's not why Christ is speaking. You can see that very clearly in the next verse, verse 6. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Christ knew what he would do, and Christ knew what Philip would do. Now listen, God sends tests to us not because God does not know what we will do. God knows what we will do. He sends tests to mature us in our faith to show us how far we have to go, to show us how much we need to grow, to show us what we really believe. We can say with the mouth, oh, I believe the Bible. We can come and sit on a pew like this and we can say, oh yes, blessed assurance and down at the cross and Jesus saved me and how wonderful that is. And yet, until you're in a test, that truth may or may not be real what you're singing. You see, God loves His children enough that He will send moments like this into your life. That's exactly what Christ was doing right here with His disciples. Now, I want to just say this. We need test. Now, I don't want them. Right now, in my own life, I am going through spiritual tests. I'm going through church tests. I'm going through personal tests. I mean, I could just sit down and count all these trials that I'm not really thrilled about that I'm going through. And I know that many of you are doing the same thing. I mean, I'm praying with some of you 
for situations that are a trial and a test in your life. Some of it's physical. I mean, you are under the trial of cancer, and I'm praying for you. Some of it's emotional. You're depressed, and we're praying for you. Your pastors love you enough when you say, will you pray with us about this? Some of you, it's direction. You say, I don't know what to do. I need clarity. For some of you, it's your children, and I'm praying with you over your children. And we could go on and on. For some of you, it's a spiritual battle. You're struggling with sin, and God is pursuing you, and you're running from God. And I want you to know in those moments, we're praying for you, but those moments are testings and trials. I don't want those moments. I'm going to be honest with you, but I need those moments, and you need those moments. This is a good thing. Tests are occasions for God to do good. You say, well, where do you get that? Well, this was a test. It was an occasion for God to do good in John chapter 6, but I can go to other scripture in the New Testament, and I'm told repeatedly, three times in the New Testament, that for a believer, testing is not God's judgment, it's His good. Let me give you some passages that you can write down and you can go back and you can look at later. I mean, first of all, if we're just going in chronological order of the books of the New Testament, the first place I would go is Romans, uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. And in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, the Bible tells me very clearly that God sends difficulties into my life for three good reasons. And what are those three good reasons? I'll sum them up for you. You ready? Number one, suffering produces endurance. So when a trial comes into my life, when I've got this issue, and it's a test from God, I don't have to say God doesn't love me. I can instantly go, consider it all joy, brethren, when you face trials of many kinds. Why would I consider that joyful? Because it produces endurance. You need to grow in maturity. Endurance produces character. Character. There's, there's many people in the church that are low on endurance and low on character. And it's because they have never passed the test that God has sent to them. Now, you know, when my kids were little, we'd go somewhere in public and they would scream and they would cry and they would kick and you'd get those evil stares from people, you know, who would look at you. And as a parent, you felt so embarrassed. And you said, oh my goodness, the whole world hates me. But then as you get a little bit older, you realize everybody's kids do that. They're kids. I mean, it doesn't matter how much you discipline them and spank them. A three-year-old is going to be a three-year-old. And so there would sometimes be good people that would come up at church or grocery store, and they would say, hang in there, hang in there. You ain't seen nothing yet. Wait till they're teenagers. Hang in there. And they would just encourage you, you know, that even though the kid is having a meltdown because you said no to a candy bar, we're going to make it through this and we're not abnormal. And that was okay when they were three. It's not okay when they're 30 and they're pitching a fit. I mean, wouldn't it be embarrassing if you had a 30-year-old that acted like a 10-year-old? And some have that. And it's embarrassing. And, and it, is, it should be embarrassing. Why? 
because we expect more at a different age, do we not? God is our Father. He is our Father. And I'm going to tell you what He does with young believers. There's patience when you're young because you're three years old in the faith. But God expects us to grow. In theology, we call this sanctification. And there's three phases, basic theology, of sanctification. The Word tells us this. We are sanctified. That's position. When we're saved, we're positionally sanctified in Christ. But we're also told that we have to walk in the Spirit. We have to walk in the light. We have to die to self. That's progressive sanctification. So from the moment you're saved, even though you're sanctified in Christ positionally, you progressively grow in your sanctification. This is normal Christian life. You go from the milk of the Word to the meat of the Word. But then as you progress, one day there will be perfected sanctification in glory. Your body will be redeemed and resurrected and you reunited with your spirit. And when that happens, you will be perfectly sanctified. It's a process. You're positionally progressive and one day perfected in sanctification. Now, what that means is that God works on all of us. And you are not finished until you draw your last breath. And even then, you're not finished until he returns again. So, as a believer, you have to mature. And if, if you don't mature, you have zero character. Endurance produces character. I have seen 40-year-old, 50-year-old, 60-year-old, 70-year-old professed believers pitch fits in the church like three-year-olds. You want to know why? They've never passed the test that the Lord has sent them. They have not learned a thing. There has been very little progressive sanctification, and this is not God's fault. The Lord will send these tests to you for your good. Embrace them. Embrace them. And this is not just Romans chapter 5. You go to James chapter 1. Consider it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Why? Why? Well, you know that it builds maturity is what James says. And it's not just Romans and James, it's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Peter says, add these things to your faith. Why? To keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. A Christian can be ineffective and unfruitful, therefore a Christian adds to their faith. By the power of God, through the measure of grace, we add two. So let me just say this, and then we're going to move on to the second point. If you're a Christian, everything God is doing in your life, every trial that He's bringing in your life is constructive. It is good, and it is constructive, and I need it, and you need it, and we need it for character. We need it for endurance. We need it for hope. We need it for growth so that we're not ineffective and useless for the kingdom of God. Some of us are just taking up pews. We are very ineffective. And you know it. It's clear in your heart. Why? Well, it's where you are. The Lord will send things into your life to push you toward Him. Now, if you're an unbeliever, if you're not a child of God, let me say that everything that happens to you is a consequence. There is a difference. An unbeliever faces the consequences of sin. A believer, no matter what happens, even if it is a consequence for sin, it is constructive. 
All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. So what Christ is doing here testing, he is doing it for a good reason, their good. He does it for our good. What is your fish and your loaves? You will all have one. Don't look at it as God's judgment. Look at it as God's good. That's the number one way to pass the test. Number two, how do you pass the test? You're going to have them if you're a believer. God's going to send them into your life. So how do you pass? Well, number one, see it as good. It is a good blessing from God. Thank you, Lord, for the trial to mature me in the faith. But number two, tests are opportunities for application. They are opportunities for application. Now, let's go to verse 4. And I want you to see how the Lord was about to force these men, these disciples, to apply higher-level blooms, the Scripture. The Scripture was their textbook. And if all they did was study the textbook, that is not enough. Now, I'm not saying the Word is not sufficient. I am saying that you cannot be a hearer of the Word and not also a doer of the Word. If you hear it, you must do it. It does no good if you look at your face in a mirror and walk away. And so the word is sufficient, but let me say God says you got to do more than the textbook. You're going to have to apply this. You say, well, did they apply it? Yes, they did. Look at verse 4. Notice this particular word, key word. You cannot read this story without this word. Now the Passover. Stop right there. Circle that word Passover. Now, you remember what the Passover was. God had rescued the children of Israel out of Egypt. He had instructed them to put blood on the doorpost, and the death angel spared their home. And then God said, you take everything you have. You don't have time to bake bread. You take unleavened bread. You get out of Egypt. You follow me. They follow. We get to Exodus chapter 16. And what happens? The people realize we're in the desert where there is no food. There's no pots of meat. What do we do? And God says, I am your bread of life. Trust me and I will take care of you. And so God does two things in Exodus chapter 16. He sends quail in the evening so they'll have meat. And he sends manna in the morning so that they will have bread. Now there's two instructions that are given to these Israelites as God gives them their sustenance. In Exodus 16, two particular passages, verse 20 and 27, God says this. In 20, he says, Only gather enough for yourself each day, except on Saturday. And on Saturday, I want you to gather double for, for I'm sorry, Friday. I want you to gather double for Saturday, the Sabbath. See, I'm thinking all New Testament Christian. And I was about to say Sunday. The Sabbath was Saturday. So he says, I want you to gather enough on, on that, that day of the week. Friday would be our day. They didn't name their days. They numbered them. And so he says, I want you to, to gather that together enough for that day so you don't work on the Sabbath. It's a day of rest. Two commands. Gather double on Friday and only gather enough for each day every other day of the week. Now, what did they do? They didn't listen. It was a test. God says in Exodus, 
why are you testing me? You're failing my test for you. I've commanded you. I've commanded you to only gather what you need every day. Why? He was teaching them. What was he teaching them? I am the bread of life. I will sustain you. But there were, there were people who didn't listen, 1620. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left and put more than what they needed. That angered the Lord, 1627. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, even though they had been told, you rest on the seventh day. There are still some people that went out to gather. They did not trust God. This was a teaching moment in Exodus. And this was all part of the Passover and the going into the desert and the remembrance. God was saying, I am your sustainer. Now you come back to John chapter 6. Here Jesus is on this mountain. People are coming over. They're on their way, more than likely, to the Passover. Where they will remember what the book says. Well, they, they'll be reminded what the book says. The Exodus. And yet they fail to apply the truth. His very disciples. Now, we can't blame the crowds, but the disciples. This should not have been lost on them, on any Jew who would have known anything about the history. This should not have been lost on them. This was an obvious marker. Failure. Just failure to apply truth. And so Christ picks this Passover, the Feast of the Jews. It's at hand, and he uses this opportunity to give his disciples a moment of application. You ready to apply what you know? Are you ready to live it? Are you ready to see it in action is what Christ is saying. Are you ready? And yet, they would not be ready. They would not be ready. Gather only what you need. Only what you need. Now, we miss this. Because in our day and age, we can go to the grocery store and we can buy anything we want in abundance. And it, it doesn't bother us. In fact, we're completely lost. When we read about the Israelites in the desert starving and looking for food and that God gave them food, it's, it's somewhat lost on us in translation. We cannot relate to this. We have never been hungry. I mean, I, I think I can say that about every American. No American has any excuse to have ever been hungry. Go to a third world country. They don't have Calvary rescue missions and government programs. No American has to be hungry. And so for us, this is lost, and it's lost on us being in the wilderness, listening to our master teach. 5,000 people come, and there's no food. What are we going to eat? I mean, you study history and states fell because of food. Case in point, French Revolution, 1789. I mean, the, the river there in Paris froze over. There was a horrible wheat crop the summer before due to drought. And because of the freezing river and the drought of wheat, Louis XVI could not produce bread for his people. It was the main staple of their diet. 
The Parisians were starving. And you want to know what caused the French Revolution? Hunger. I'll show you in the history books. I'll pull it up for you. I've got it right there. Historians will tell you hunger. It's lost on us. We think, what do you mean? Let them eat cake. And yet, yet, this was very real for these people. So for Jesus to say, what are we going to do? This is a huge problem. This is a very scary moment. These people did not live in abundance. They lived hand to mouth. And so here he is, he's letting them apply. When the Lord took care of his people in Exodus, will the Lord take care of his people right now today? Now, this is your opportunity to apply the Scripture. Let me ask you this. Do you apply the Scripture? Do you live it out? Is it real in your life or is it just a book? You see, these disciples had the book, but that was not enough to pass the test. I'm going to tell you what else they had. They had a lot of classroom time. They had a lot of lecture notes stored right here in the noggin. You say, how do you, how do you know that? Look at all the things Christ had already done in their midst. He had turned water into wine. He had healed the centurion's son. He had given the paralytic the ability to walk. He would do so many more signs and wonders to prove who he was. These men that we're talking about in this text were disciples who had the book. They had the notes. They had the class. They could not apply it. So let me tell you, when you have your moment of fish and loaves, the Lord's going to give you the opportunity to apply what you know. To apply what you know. You have plenty of book. You have plenty of classroom time. you got to live it. So tests are occasions for good. Tests are opportunities for application. And God gives you those moments to pass the test. But number three, let me say this, tests are options for dependence. They are options for dependence. Now what Christ is going to show in this text is that his own disciples are going to initially fail at dependence. Now notice, again, Jesus lifts up his eyes. Look at verse 5. Sees the large crowd, and Jesus turns to Philip. Now why did he turn to Philip out of all his disciples that were with him? And he also mentions Andrew in this text. Philip speaks, and then verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, also spoke. Now, both of these men were from this particular region, Bethsaida. So, one reason perhaps Christ went to both of them is because they know the area very well. They are very secure in their surroundings. They are on the home field, and so they think that they have maybe an advantage. Now, that's just speculation, but I think that's a pretty good speculation. Christ turns to two guys that are from there who have all this knowledge of there and says, now, what, what are we going to do? Now, do you know what, notice what Philip does? Philip answers in a way that, that many of you would answer. He wants to solve the problem with his brains. Notice verse 7, Philip said, well, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little do you see the mathematical calculation Philip is doing? He's looking at the numbers. 
He's calculating. He's thinking, now where would we go to get this? And how much is this going to cost? And he basically says, I'm just going to be honest with you, Master. I'm doing the calculations here. And six months of an average laborer's wages would not feed these people. That's what 200 denarii is. Six months wages of an average laborer. I could take half my salary for a year. And if I took half that salary, Christ, we wouldn't be able to financially afford all these people. You see, I can't solve this with my brain. Well, what, what does Andrew do? One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? I, I love Andrew. He, he would do probably what I would try to do. Let's solve this problem. I mean, I don't know how we're going to do it. I don't, I don't have the means, but, but we got to supply something here. we got to do something. You know, Philip is we got to solve it with our brains. Andrew is, let's, let's figure it out and supply it with our brawn. Let's go around and let's just do something. Something's better than nothing. So we got this kid here. I don't know what you want to do with him. I mean, I don't know how far that's going to go, but that's our only option. Again, this is a test. Now, who was the kid? You ever wondered that? The Bible is full of so many people who you never know their name, and you've got to wonder, how did they live out the rest of their lives? I mean, one such little girl is in the Old Testament when Naaman goes to be healed of his leprosy, and she runs and tells Naaman where to go and how to get healed, and we never know her name. We don't know what happened to her, but I guarantee you she probably lived the rest of her life and never forgot that story. And, and another example, I mean, there's so many in the Bible of these nameless people. You, you know, whatever happened after they were resurrected, whatever happened after they were healed, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us because ultimately you would fill volumes and volumes. You couldn't contain the stories. It would be too much. It would be information overload. And so God gives you just what you need to have faith. But one such person is this kid we don't know who he was. More than likely, because Andrew and Philip were from the area, they probably knew this kid. And what's so remarkable about him is he just had a little, and he didn't try to solve it with his brains. He didn't try to supply it with his brawn. He just said, look, I'm, I'm here. I'll serve. You want my basket? I'll give it. I mean, look, I know some kids that like, would have took off running, when they heard that, you're going to take my basket? You ain't going to take my basket, old man. I'm faster than you. And they'd be gone. I, I know some of those kids around here, right? But, but this kid stays, and he's willing to stay right there. And what he has, which is, again, scarcity in a culture where they lived hand to mouth, he's even willing to give that up for whatever that would cost him. And we don't know his name. But I guarantee you this. While this is my speculation, I will tell you, I guarantee you he never forgot that day for the rest of his life. And if he was anything like me, he probably questioned for the rest of his life. Now, did that really happen that way? Did, did I really? Okay, wait. How did they do that? I don't know. You ever had some miraculous thing happen and you look back 30 years later and go, I still don't know how that happened. 
But all I know is God was miraculously working. I still can't explain it. And that must have been how this boy was. But in these three characters that you see in this story, and by the way, of all the, the, the examples of this story, it's in, it's in Matthew 14 and in Luke 9 and in Mark 6. And in all three of those gospel accounts, it never mentions this boy. It never mentions Philip and Andrew. John is the only one that fills in the gaps. And he makes it come alive He makes it real. He tells us the deeper story. But what we see is that this is dependence. Philip, you can't solve this with your brains. Andrew, you cannot solve this with your brawn. And little boy, to be real honest with you, even though you're willing, you can't solve this with your basket. You have to depend on another. Now hear me, church, and hear me, Christian. There will be moments in your life where this is beyond you. And I think we've forgotten that. I think the church today is self-satisfied and rich and in need of nothing. You've become kings without us, Paul said to the Corinthians. You don't need God. You don't need Him for anything. And I think we feel that way about a lot of things around here. We're, we're satisfied. We're good. But I want to tell you, you can have the smartest people in your group. You can have the best thinkers. And that's not enough. That's not enough. There are things we cannot do. And until we come to that place, I don't believe we'll pass our test. There are things I cannot do. And the older I get, God is making that clear. There are things you cannot do. There are things our church cannot do. There are things our school cannot do. And the older you mature in the faith, God will show you there are only things He can do. When was the last time we got on our face and called out to the Lord for these things? When was the last time? It's very rare. Very rare rare. We'll pray to open something. We'll pray, you know, uh, formally, but rare are we calling out to the Lord because we realize we're dependent upon Him. We're dependent upon Him. And so all of these things were meant to show them dependence. No one could solve the problem except one, and that's Christ. Look at verse 11. Jesus took the loaves, and when He had given thanks... He distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, over 5,000 people had their fill. It wasn't a little, it was a lot. Everyone got full. This was an all-you-can-eat buffet of manna. And when everyone had gotten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and they filled the 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And they ate. So not only did they take care of everyone else's needs, their needs were met. And what was this? Well, you don't have to wonder. Verse 14, a sign. Now, we'll get to this later in chapter 6 in future sermons, how the masses misinterpreted this sign, how they were wrong in their 
assessment of the entire situation. But for the disciples that we're focused on here in these first 15 verses, this is a test and this is a sign and this is a turning point for them. Because God is showing them to be dependent. Lay it before the Lord. Many things only He can do. So let me just end the sermon by asking you this question. How dependent are you upon God for life? Trials and tests are occasions for good. Do you accept that? Will you accept that? Will you say, thank you, Lord? I'll count it all joy because you're maturing me in my faith. I need maturity. Will you say, Lord, these are opportunities for me to live out what I've read all of my life in Sunday school and what I've talked about in home groups and what we've done in discipleship groups. And I've heard a thousand sermons over a thousand years. And God, I'm ready to start living what you've said in the word. It's time for me to start passing the test and just stop sitting there in the classroom. And and, and will it lead you to dependence to say, God, there are only things you can do and I must learn this. You see, that's the best teacher. That's the best teacher right there. Defend, construct, justify, apply. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the word of the Lord that instructs us in complete truth and relevance. I pray that we will be dependent people, seeing trials as good things, being matured in our faith, applying that truth to everyday life so that we can glorify you. We can witness about you. We can proclaim you. We can worship you and we can make it all the way home to glory to meet you. Father, I know there's people who are lost here and we've made the distinction that for the child of God, it's always constructive. For the unbeliever, it's always a consequence I pray any unbeliever here will hear this message and say, I want to be a child of God. How do I do that? I want to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. I'm I'm ready for test because that's a sure sign I belong to Him. It's a sure sign I belong to Him that I'm tested. And so, Father, would you give us that grace to obey you? In Jesus' name we pray. Would you stand with us? We're going to have a hymn of invitation.